Welcome to my show, The Green Link, where environmental community leaders share their passion, interest, and amazing work through this channel and continue to guide and inspire everyone around them. I'm Ishan Bardwaj, and today I have Charlotte Blattner. Charlotte is a senior researcher and lecturer at the Institute for Public Law at the University of Bern. She holds a doctoral degree in international law and animal law from the University of Basel, Switzerland, and an LLM from Harvard Law School. In her thesis, she addresses the global phenomenon of climate change as a disruptive factor of social organizations. Thanks for coming to my show. Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. Really look forward to talking to you today. So I know you're currently working on a big research project called Habilitation. What is this project and how does it affect the environment? Good question. So um, habilitation, maybe um, that's something that's quite a Eurocentric term. It's basically a qualification dissertation that you need before you become a professor. So in that, I basically deal with public laws that's affected by climate change. And so my focus is on constitutional law and administrative law. Um, why this focus? So climate change confronts us, as you know, with massive novel ecological, sociopolitical and economic challenges, both in qualitative and quantitative terms. We have rising temperatures, extreme weather, um, we have droughts and dwindling water resources, and all of this brings to the surface complex issues about habitability, food security, migration, and even more generally, the regulation of climate as a common good. And so public law is a central means by which we organize social coexistence. Hence, it has to answer to the threats of climate change. But as you might know, as elsewhere, the extent, impact and speed of climate change tends to be massively underrated in Switzerland. And also here, the law is compartmentalized, focused on myopic interests, thanks to short-term political election cycles. So in my habilitation, I look at some of the foundational things that define public law, such as whether, whether traditional legislative, judicial and enforcement mechanisms in Swiss constitutional and administrative law are sufficient to meet these challenges or whether they need to be adapted, in some cases, even fundamentally redesigned. So are the current laws that you're talking about relative to like Swiss law and international law enough to sustain the environment or do we have to make further radical changes to the laws? So I'm guessing you're speaking about environmental laws more generally, not just about climate change laws. So I think here it's safe to say that most laws, um, basically, if you look at them, they state that they're designed to protect the environment. Um, however, often they are used to actually protect our use of the environment. So they these laws, they usually define when and under which conditions we can extract natural resources from the environment, how we can use water, land and air, and to which degree we can pollute the environment. And there are only few measures truly designed to protect the, the environment in these laws. So generally, it's safe to say that these laws, be they national or international, are not truly designed to affect changes, let alone radical changes. So they mostly deal with market-based mechanisms and 
those actually end up replicating the status quo and often benefit a few powerful players rather than truly changing something about the status quo. So do you think we still have time to turn things around and initiate such changes? Oof, this is a really tough question. So, so I'm not a scientist myself, and so it's really difficult for me to tell, do we have enough time to initiate changes? So um, it depends on what type of change you're talking about. If you're talking about going back to where uh, the planet could still have been unaffected by human action to the extent that it's not suffering from major damage, I think we're past that point. And so the question is, do we have enough time to affect changes that still are going to ensure the survival of the environment, uh, most of the animals and humans living on this planet? I certainly hope we do. Um, I'm a bit skeptical, to, um, however, since if you think about law, and I'm, I'm someone who works with law, right? So law usually lags behind social change. Uh, or even geological phenomena and technological innovations. So I'm rather skeptical about this, but I don't think that this should mean we shouldn't act today. We still have a duty to do everything that we can and as fast as possible to halt the warming planet since harm can still be avoided, even if not all harm. Yeah, def and definitely. I hope we have more time and to extend the time period we have, we need to start initiating changes right away. So prior to this, were you always involved in the environment and climate change? Or what else do you do and did you do? That's a good question. No, I actually wasn't. And to some extent that could be seen as a weakness, but somehow it's also a strength since I think many people are just um, gradually learning about our effects on climate and the tragic state um, the climate is in right now. So prior to this, I, as you mentioned, I studied law in Switzerland and there I worked for several courts. So I actually wanted to become a practicing lawyer, but then I joined a PhD program since I found it so interesting. It was a program called Law and Animals at the University of Basel. So I started the PhD dealing with international law aspects of animal law, globalization of our economic use of animals and how the law can or should respond to this. Um, I did some really fun things. I joined as a visiting scholar at uh, the Center for Animal Law Studies in Portland, which is part of the Lewis and uh, Clark Law School. After I finished my PhD, I worked as a postdoc at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada, working on animal labor issues and teaching animal ethics and studies classes. Um, that was really an interesting time as well, since it um, got me to go out of the law aspects and deal more with the uh, philosophical and political underpinnings of our relations with other animals. And then after the year at Queen's University, I joined the Harvard Law and Policy Program in Cambridge as a postdoc working on animal and environmental law intersections. But I think we're going to talk about this in just a few minutes in more detail. So do you think that animal law and climate change are related and can affect each other if one, either one is changed? Because we were talking about this in a few podcasts before this. So what, what are your thoughts on this? 
Oh, yes, they certainly are. And there are many points of intersections here, but I think the most notable is agriculture. So um, I'm sure you've talked about this before. We've had older studies that estimated that the agricultural livestock sector accounts for 14.5% of the global emissions, the annual global emissions. But we have more recent studies that actually show that this percentage is much closer to 50%. So that's far more than all transportation combined produces, including air travel, buildings, power plants, and factories. So if global trends in agricultural livestock production continue, be they locally produced or abroad, temperatures will continue to rise by more than two degrees on average, and this is undisturbed. So this will be the case if emissions in non-agricultural sectors were dramatically reduced. So in a sense, you can say we, can't, we cannot afford not to look at agriculture. So in a sense, if you look at emissions, animal agriculture is the new coal, as I like to say. So we have more and more climate scientists that are pointing out that the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement cannot really be met unless we also phase out the worst forms of agriculture. Interestingly, a transition here would be far more feasible, less costly and less time consuming than in the coal sector. It is remarkable how much greenhouse gases we can save here and how quickly we can act. It's still the case that the agricultural livestock production has been a blind spot in climate policy for decades. Food production is still a taboo um, that receives too little attention in politics. And I'm really hoping that we can turn around things in this area going forward. And what's your opinion about globalization and its effects on climate change? Do you think it can speed up initiatives um, to help stop climate change by exchange of technology, data, ideas and, and more? In the best case, yes, that's what will happen, meaning that there will some so, will be some sort of a race to the top. So states and their companies will try to outdo each other um, and uh, really compete with each other concerning their climate performances. So they act faster with better technologies, innovations, etc. However, currently the legal environment is still such that it lets people profit from exploiting the environment and polluting the climate. So unless this regulatory environment and the social expectations gradually and radically change, we will continue to have a competition for the cheapest products, the cheapest services, etc. All of this being done at the expense of a safe environment and climate for us and for all the generations to come. Yes, unless these big com- companies take these initiatives um, to help stop climate change in their own companies. Can you talk about your work in the U.S. after your Ph.D.? Certainly. So when I did my postdoc at Queen's University in Kingston, Canada, I worked on animal labor issues. So I looked at whether some animals um, who continue to tremendously contribute to our economy are not also some sort of workers contributing to the common good that are still unrecognized today and what it would mean if we recognize them as workers as well so would that mean um, that we have a duty to afford them labor rights for example so those are some of the things that I've looked at when I worked in Canada and then joining the Harvard Law and Policy Program in the US, I looked at intersections between environmental law and animal law. So usually, as you know, 
the two are quite separated. So we have a ton of environmental law acts and then we usually have an animal welfare act. But the two of them um, rarely operate in unison and they often have conflicting goals as well. So I looked at several instances that I considered critical at this intersection. So I looked at animal agriculture and farmers' rights. I looked at the agency of animals and to what degree the law, the law actually sees or reflects that agency. Um, with a friend, I developed ethical principles for non-invasive research with animals where they're being respected as participants. And I also looked at ways to transition away from uh, climate damaging agriculture to a more sustainable form of agriculture going forward. Interesting. And afterwards, coming to present time, I saw that you're interested in a recent case about elderly women suing the state for not having strict enough climate goals to protect their lives. I'm really intrigued by this, too. So could you talk about this a little bit more? Sure, I can. So as I mentioned, Switzerland, along with most other countries, is not doing as much as is necessary to avert the climate crisis. Governments, as they're not doing sufficient to protect the basic rights of their people from climate damage, are increasingly being sued in court to do more or to actually start acting. And in this case, the Climate Seniors Association, is that's a group of over 1,800 women aged 64 and up, So they sued the government and demanded that it sets up stricter climate goals and that it starts to thoroughly enforce existing climate laws. Unfortunately, the court of the second instance, as well as the Swiss Federal Supreme Court, they dismissed the case, arguing that the changes like these that the Climate Seniors Association is looking for are not to be made by the judiciary, but by the parliament. However, and many legal scholars have criticized this, that the arguments made by the court are in a sense nonsensical and circular. If the parliament fails to act, who else but the courts should protect the basic rights of people? So such challenges, including challenges such as proving a casual link between actions and climate change, et cetera, will continue to preoccupy us for the next years. And in fact, the Netherlands highest court proved in the Urgenda case that things can be done differently. So it obliged the government to reduce CO2 emissions by 25% by the end of 2020 compared to 1999. I also read that you won a case at Swiss federal court on primate rights. What was this case about? So I'm not sure many of the listeners of your podcast know this, but unlike us, animals or other animals, since we're animals as well, other animals do not have fundamental rights. Um, They're guaranteed neither a right to life nor a right to bodily and mental integrity, even though they share with us the interest in being alive and not being harmed. And fundamental rights are necessary precisely in the case where such fundamental interests are at stake because they do not permit certain impairments in any case, such as purposeful killing. In the case of less serious violations, special justification is always required and there's a strict balancing of interests. Uh, But instead of actually protecting animals' interests in this effective way through basic rights, the Animal Welfare Act in Switzerland, and in fact, as most animal welfare acts in the world, it essentially 
determines that and how animals can be used and killed. And as a consequence of that, human interests in using animals categorically takes precedence over the interests of animals in being protected. And so critical voices all often refer to animal protection acts as animal use acts. So in this case, um, you might notice there are 26 cantons in Switzerland. It's like states in the US. And there's one canton, the canton of the city of Basel, where a citizen's initiative was launched in 2016, demanding that the rights catalog in the cantonal constitution be complemented by a fundamental right to life and bodily and mental integrity for non-human primates. This initiative afterwards became the subject of more than a three-year legal dispute. In early 2019, the Cantonal Constitutional Court ruled that cantons are free to expand the circle of rights holders beyond the anthropological barrier. Then finally, in 2020, the Supreme Court confirmed that decision, ruling that the initiative is legally valid and that it must be put to the vote uh, to the people. So for the first time ever on this planet and in history, people will get to vote on whether other animals also deserve rights. But whether the people of Baselstadt are prepared to do so, we'll only see that in late 2021 or 2020 when the vote is, is expected to take place. That's amazing. And by not caring about animal rights, we're just showing our dominance, which is really rude and not good. And finally, since you have experienced living in both Switzerland and the U.S., have you witnessed different environmental problems and how these are dealt with by the government and individuals living there? That is a really interesting question. Um, Certainly there are differences, even if both the U.S. and Switzerland are democracies. And Um, considering themselves to be some of the strongest democracies in the world. So I think one big difference is how the law is made in the U.S. versus Switzerland. So concerning questions like to what extent are private actors and especially large corporations involved in the making of the law? So in the U.S., lobbying is huge and private corporations have tremendous power in shaping policy. In Switzerland, this is much more restricted. Um, Another difference that I'd like to highlight are the means of direct democracy. In Switzerland, and the private case nicely shows that you as the people have the power to change even the constitutional provisions, and even if it's done against the will of the parliament. So you do have to collect 100,000 signatures from the people, and the people have to vote on this, but there is a huge opportunity to change the constitution, which is basically unmatched worldwide and to this day unthinkable in the U.S. That's an amazing true democracy. So thank you so much, Charlotte, for taking the time with me today to talk about your thoughts on climate change, animal law, and how strongly they're connected and overall your thoughts on climate change. Thank you so much for having me, Sean. It was a true pleasure to be here today and talk to you. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Subscribe to my podcast if you enjoyed. Also, follow me on social media. 
My Instagram and Facebook is at thegreenlink2020 and my Snapchat is at thegreenlink. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.